Amen. Hey, let's get right into it. Turn to the book of Romans. And we're going to be sitting in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. As we continue our great look through the book of Romans, this idea of being set free. Romans chapter 8, 1 through 17. And my prayer is I can simply get out of the way and let God speak to you directly. Because this is good stuff. So start with verse 1 with me. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit." For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Wow. So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body... You will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption. As sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Oh, that's good stuff. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is God's truth written in the first century to the church in Rome through a guy named Paul, but yet applicational and just as relevant for us here in 2014. As we think through this great chapter, I want us to think of the theme of identity. And that as a Christian, you've been set free to a brand new identity. If you think through what is your identity as you come into this room, think for a moment rhetorically, what would that be? What would your answer be? What is my identity? For some, identity is discovered in what they do. I'm an accountant. I work at Disneyland. I am a teacher. For others, identity is defined by what they're talented at. 
I can ride the mountain bike over crazy trails up in Black Star Canyon. I'm an amazing coupon collector. I'm pretty funny, my friends tell me. I mean, that's what you're identified as. And then for many, identity is forged through relationship. I'm a dad, or I'm a sister, or I'm a best friend, or, or I'm a grandmother. But for the Christian, our identity goes deeper than what we simply do for a living, or what we're talented at, or what relationships we're connected to. Romans 8 tells us that for the Christian, and, and by Christian I mean someone who's placed their faith in, in Jesus as, as Savior and Lord. For the Christian, we have a brand new identity through this faith in Jesus. And this brand new identity now is what we bring into our jobs, what we bring into our talents, and what we bring into our relationships. Rather than having our identity derived from those things, instead our new identity in Christ is what we bring into those things. So what are some of the markers of this new identity? Well, Romans 8 is amazing. It tells us all about it. And you can follow along in your sermon notes if you find that to be helpful. But I want to just walk through. Here's some, here's some identity markers that we see here in Romans chapter 8. And the first is this. Is that you have an identity as a follower of Jesus. That you've been set free from guilt and shame. Look carefully again at Romans 8 verse 1. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Underline that word now in your Bible if you're prone to do such a thing. Now, that is our present reality as a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say, well, maybe in the future there'll be no condemnation. No, it says now. It doesn't say, well, maybe we're hopeful, we're wishful that there'll be no condemnation for the Christian. No, no. Now, this is your present reality. Those that believe in Jesus, there is now no condemnation. This word condemnation in the original language can mean something like this. It means serving a penalty. So there's now no longer the need or desire or requirement to serve a penalty. Those that are in Christ Jesus have been freed from that. Look at Romans 8, 2 again. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Before you placed your faith in Jesus, you were a slave to sin. Maybe that's your reality right now if you're, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus. You are a slave to sin and therefore you serve and are a slave to serving the penalty of sin. The closest, like, Orange County thing I can relate to this to is traffic school. <laughs> and how you have this eight-hour block, usually on, like, the most beautiful Saturday of your life, where you're stuck in a cold, dark courtroom going through traffic school with the most random 100 people you've ever met in your life. Is that true? And you're just counting down the hours, hoping that you get back in time for lunch break and you're not late. And there's a couple that don't. And you're like, ooh, they get kicked out. And you're just waiting, set me free. I'm a slave to this. I'm serving my penalty. And then it's the greatest thing, huh? When 3 o'clock hits or 3.30 or whenever school ends, and you bring your paperwork up to the teacher, and they stamp your paperwork. You've completed traffic school. You are free. And you walk out of that courtroom, and you breathe the fresh air 
kind of fresh air of Orange County, and you're like, I'm free. Okay, take that analogy, and it breaks down on several levels when you think about us and Jesus. But we are free, finally, in Christ Jesus. We've been slaves to sin. We've been slaves to serving the penalty, the condemnation of sin. And then Jesus declares us and stamps us not guilty. You are free from guilt and shame. Well, how did God exactly do that? How does God set us free? Verse 3. This has become, oh, I just love this. Little eight, eight, three. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God no longer condemns you for your sin because he's placed his righteous condemnation on his own son. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And therefore, sin is condemned in Jesus. This is what God means in Romans 5.8 when he says that I demonstrated my love for you and that while yet you were a sinner, Christ died for you. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the free news of Romans. You heard the name Timothy Keller when we were going through the Right Now stuff. And Tim Keller has a great quote on this whole idea. He says, The founder of every major religion says this, Come, I'll show you how to find God. Jesus does things differently. Jesus says, I am God, and I have come to find you. Isn't that a great reality? That God sent his son, sinful flesh, yet was without sin, became the perfect offering for our sin, and sin was condemned. It was nailed on the cross. And Jesus says, it is finished. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Randall, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Carrie, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Elliot, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is our reality for those that place their faith in Jesus. This is awesome. This would change us. This is our identity. It sets us free. And then we take this. And now this goes with us to work. We walk into work tomorrow. And everyone's like, it's Monday. It's Monday. And we say, it is Monday. (laughs) I have been set free from sin. There is no condemnation. Let me open the books. I'm ready to go. This changes us. This is our identity. Do you believe it? Do you? Do you really believe this? Maybe for some of you, for some of us, it's like, yeah, that sounds really good, but my past is awful. And I walk around every day feeling the weight of shame and guilt, even as a Christ follower. Or maybe you have the complete opposite reaction. You're like, 
I lived a really rough, rebellious life, and then when I was four, I came to Jesus. <laughs> You're like, I just don't really have a whole lot to be condemned about or to feel shameful or guilty about. But here's the key, is that as verse 4 says here in Romans, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Whether you have a police record or a preschool perfect attendance star chart, none of us can fulfill the law. None of us. That's what the first seven chapters of Romans just say over and over and over again. Maybe you've kind of felt like in some ways we've been a broken record the last few weeks. We've been saying over and over, no one can fulfill the law. None of us. No matter your past, how bad or how good it was, we're all in equal footing. We are guilty of sin. And then Romans 8 shows up. And Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's awesome. And then out of that justification... Then the Holy Spirit comes into our life. The moment that we become a Christian, we place our faith in Him. And He leads us on this beautiful road of what I call sanctification, which is growing in the Christian life. And this is identity marker number two of those that follow Jesus, is that we've been set free to overcome sin. You've been given the Holy Spirit to give you the power to obey and to please God. Look at verse 5. It says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And then verse 6 says, a mind set on the Holy Spirit gives us life and peace. Verse 7 and 8 of Romans 8 say, a mind set on the flesh, meaning a mind set on myself cannot please God. When the Holy Spirit comes in your life, now... You have the ability to have a mind that can be set on God. Before Jesus, you have no ability to do that. You only can live in your flesh. But then when you accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Spirit comes in your life. Now you have the ability to set your mind on Jesus. Think for a moment of where you are in this moment. Are you taking advantage of that ability? Are you setting your mind on Jesus Christ? Examine where you're at. What are you taking into your mind? So I was thinking through, well, how do you remember this? It's a brain. <laughs> it's mind, right? You get it? What are you taking into this thing? As you think through last week, this weekend, Matt said it well, technology has provided amazing opportunities for us to be connected and to look up things at the drop of a hat. But also technology is this thing that can just fill our minds with so much that is in direct opposition to God. That takes us away from pursuing the things of God. The Spirit has given you the ability to set your mind on Him. Are you taking advantage of that? What are you taking into your mind? But let me be clear that we can't overcome sin by simply our own discipline or mindset. I love what the 16th century Puritan writer John Owen said 
when he said, A man may easier see without eyes and speak without a tongue than mortify, which means put to death, a sin without the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit of God, you have no hope to live the Christian life. There is no way that you can overcome any sin. But the good news, and this is what Romans 8 says, is that you have the Spirit of God as a follower of Jesus. He lives within you. God has miraculously put the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. Romans 8, 9 talks about it. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Then jump down to verse 11 here of Romans 8. It says, but the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, check this out, who dwells within you. In the Old Testament, the spirit of God dwelt where? Where? In the sanctuary, in the temple, right? The Spirit of God geographically dwelt in the temple. Periodically, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would fill the life of a follower of God to do a great work. But the Spirit dwelt in the sanctuary. Now, under the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the Spirit dwells within each of the believer's hearts and lives. That's insane. Amazing. To think through the reality of that. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit who lives in you. I've spent a lot of time with people who are living defeated, discouraged Christian lives. They're walking around just feeling like, ah, I can't kick this sinful habit. I'm feeling just like I'm in constant fear and worry and anxiety. I'm just feeling overwhelmed by this hostile world that just surrounds me. And I just want to say, like, just in my gracious, loving way, people, like, wake up. You have the Spirit of God living. You have the most high, mighty, awesome, powerful, living God living in you. And His name is the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's the reality of the life of the believer. And this spirit is willing and waiting and eager to do mighty things in your life, to give you victory in the Christian life. Francis Chan, in a great book that I recommend called Forgotten God, has this kind of quote that sums up all that he tries to express in the book when he says, I want my life to be lived in such a way that it can't be explained without the Holy Spirit. You get that? Wouldn't that be a great way to live? When people look at your life and they're like, there's no way that person can, should be forgiving that other person. There is no way that person should be as patient or self-controlled as they are. There is no way that that person should have joy in this situation. And yet we can say, there is no way that I can do that. But my life is not explained by just me. My life has a supernatural component, and that is the Holy Spirit of God dwells and lives in me. You guys, church family, my friends, Orange County would be absolutely destroyed in a good way 
if each of us took seriously the reality that as followers of Jesus, the Spirit is in us. We would have such boldness, such confidence, such eagerness to live the Christian life, not only in this place, but on the Little League field, at the grocery store, in hard places, and in good places. Our lives would radiate. That's my encouragement. Take a hold of that. The Spirit of God is in us. And then the Apostle Paul continues teaching in verse 14 when he says, For all who are being led of the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verse 15, For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we've been given a new identity in Jesus. This is another marker. Is that you've been set free to belong in God with no condemnation. Verse 15 continues, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You're adopted into God's forever family. Remember from Toy Story, Woody? And written on the bottom of his boot was his owner's name, Andy. Go with me, if you will, at this, but written on your heart, your soul and your mind is the word and the name Abba Father. For you belong to God. You've been chosen by Him. You've been adopted by Him. Not simply to be a distant relative or a hired hand, but you've been adopted as a son and a daughter of the Most High King. Verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are a children, we are a child of God. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind us, hey, hey, wake up, listen to this. You belong to God. That's the Spirit's role in our life, to tell us that, to testify to that, that you as a follower of Jesus, you're adopted by the Father. You belong to Him. He is your Abba. That word Abba is translated in the Aramaic to mean simply daddy. The Lord of the universe is your father and knows you in such a way that he says, call me daddy, call me dad. I'm your loving father. My son Samuel is two and he still sleeps in the crib. And each morning, usually way earlier than me and Maria are ever hoping for, he starts calling from his room in his crib. Mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy. Can I get up? Can I get up? Is that just like ringing a bell with you right now, Marie? It's like, oh. <laughs> if we ignore it, especially early in the morning, maybe the sun hasn't come up yet, he starts getting a little louder and a little bit more anxious. Mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy, can I get up? The other day he said, daddy, can I go to the airport? <laughs> the mind of a two-year-old. But if you think about it, Seth is offering a cry of dependence. I actually think he knows how to get out of the crib. He's strong enough, but he doesn't know that yet. So he's depending on us. He needs our help to get out of the crib, to be set free, if you will. It's a cry of urgency. I need to be set free now. And it's a cry of familiarity. Seth knows us. 
He calls us mommy. He calls us daddy. He knows his relationship to us. He knows that we love him. He knows that we're going to come rescue him. Eventually. (laughs) As a child of God, you have the privilege to cry out to God in the same way. Abba, Father. A cry of urgency. A cry of dependence. A cry of familiarity. That you know the Father. And more importantly, the Father knows you. Abba, Father. You're his child. This is your identity. And you don't have to try to be anything else. You don't have to pose and try to set up a false identity in anything else because this speaks to the core. I've had my share of posing and identity. Uh, My whole dream growing up was to be a professional baseball player. And I pursued that dream all the way to college until the pitchers in my league began to figure out that I could not hit a curveball or a slider or a changeup, or a fastball, or basically anything that they would throw towards home plate. And so that basically ended my baseball career. But I thought, okay, well, if I can't play professional baseball, maybe I can do something around the game. And so uh, my year out of, first year out of college, I went to become an intern with the Los Angeles Dodgers and worked in the front office with the Dodgers. And it was amazing. Like 10 of you will care about this, but I got to talk to Vince Scully every day, got to hang out with the players on a weekly, daily basis in the locker room. It was amazing. I had keys to Dodger Stadium, which I had to give back. But um, it was an incredible experience. But one day, this just weird thought came in my head. I thought, you know, I'm never going to be a professional baseball player, but maybe for a moment I can just pretend like I'm one, just to see what it's like. And so at the end of every game, the players go back. They obviously change. Uh, they walk out to the players' parking lot. Every stadium has this. At Dodger Stadium, it's behind uh, left field bleachers. And so the players walk out to their cars. And on day games, there's up to like 200, 300 people, mostly kids, who are around the fence of the parking lot waiting for the players to come out. And they're waiting to get an autograph. And so I had this idea. What if... Uh, I can go anywhere in Dodger Stadium. What if I just wait till kind of when the players are leaving? And I'm 22, so I'm like the same age as most of the guys. What if I just walk out through the players' parking lot and like start signing autographs? <laughs> and so I got this idea, and it started developing a little bit like more wickedly in my heart. I'm like, well, they're going to know. They're not going to recognize me. So I, this is embarrassing. I literally wet my hair to look like I had just taken a shower so that it would look like I had just come out of the locker room. And so I, I, I waited for the right time. I came out through the field, um, walked through the um, bullpen right there, came out into the player's parking lot, and my plan worked better than I could have ever imagined. I was the only guy walking up at that time, and as soon as I got to the top of the stairs in the parking lot, I heard this person just yell, like, here comes a player! I was like, yes! And so I get up to the top, and they start saying, will you sign? Can you sign an autograph? Will you sign? And so I'm just kind of thinking, okay, when should I start doing this? How can I say, go for it? And then something happened. I think it was just one punk kid, but he's like, hey, who is that? And uh, that statement freaked me out. And so all of a sudden, I think the reality of what I was, I could lose my job. What am I doing? Like there's players coming up behind me. Like what are they going to be thinking? And like, and so I just said kind of quietly to whisper, 
I'm not signing today. And I started walking through the parking lot and I walked, my car was just outside the parking lot because I'm not a player, right? So it's outside the parking lot. So I walk out of the parking lot through the gate, but then all the people start following me and they're waiting. They probably think, oh, this guy's not signing. He must be somebody really famous if he's not wanting to sign an autograph. So I'm walking towards my car, starting to slow down as people are coming around me and like, what am I going to do? I'm going to be exposed. What am I going to do? And I had a 1986 Acura Integra, which was said, it said red on the registration, but it was really pink from all the oxidation. It was rusted out. Hadn't washed it in a year. My tires were bald. And so the minute I got to the car, this whole crowd around me realized no professional athlete drives a car like that. And so I don't know who it was, but somebody spoke up and was like, this guy's not a player. He's a poser. They're like, yeah, he's a poser. And this little kid, he's a poser. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like getting in my car, just driving the drive of shame out the stadium parking lot. Like, what was I doing? Why was I trying to find my identity in that, even for 30 seconds? As a child of God, you can give up posing. You can give up trying to cling on to a false or shallow identity. Because you are a legitimate child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as a legitimate adopted child, you shall share in the inheritance of the Father. This is another marker. You're set free to hope in the future. Verse 17 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. There's an interesting historical note around this whole idea of adoption inheritance uh, for the Romans here in the first century. For there was a guy named Caesar Augustus who ruled the land, and when uh, he was growing older in years, his two sons had been killed in battle. His two grandsons then died. He did not have a direct heir to his throne. And so what he ended up doing is he had several crazy relationships, but one of the women that he had a relationship with with had a son named Tiberius who was 46 years old at this time. It was about the fourth year uh, A.D. And Caesar Augustus adopted Tiberius at the age of 46. Think about that. It was done for political reasons. It was done because Tiberius was a strong leader. He would help the kingdom of Rome, the empire. And so Tiberius at 46 became a son of Augustus and now had an inheritance. But what he inherited was not necessarily good. What he inherited was civil war among the family. You can guess that there was cousins and those that had a direct line to the throne that were not happy about this adoption. And he inherited an empire that was beginning to crumble. This was not a good adoption inheritance story. And so for the first century readers here in Rome 8, in Romans chapter 8, they would be thinking maybe of a guy like Tiberius. But the inheritance that Paul tells the followers of Jesus here that they're going to receive is good. It's not like Tiberius. It says that your fellow co-heirs with Christ. As a child of God, you're wonderfully connected to Jesus. But it's also important to know that as an heir with Christ, receiving this inheritance as a child of God, you also, verse 17 clearly tells us, will share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer as followers of Jesus. This could even be as simple or as profound as physical suffering. 
as we live in physical bodies that are decaying more and more day by day. We should not be surprised at physical suffering or emotional suffering. That as we live in a fallen world, Jesus himself experienced his own brothers and sisters calling him crazy. He experienced emotional hurt from others. And so as we share in the suffering of Christ, we should also expect some of those same things. And then persecution. Not everyone here, we live in a culture that at this moment doesn't persecute Christians. But there will be some, maybe even some of us, who will suffer for our faith in Jesus, will be persecuted for our faith in Christ. In that way, we will share in the sufferings of Jesus. But then the good news is that ultimately we'll also share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Is that when Christ returns for his bride, the church, and he gives your new identity, as marked here in Romans 8, a new body, a new world, a new heaven, and eternity with him. That's the glory, the hope that we have for the future as followers of Jesus. And so these are just four, four identity markings of of your identity as you follow him. You've been set free from guilt and shame. You've been set free to overcome sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. You belong to God. You are his child. And you have a hope and a future, an inheritance to come. Isn't this great? You know what? We're only a third through Romans 8. We're going to spend two more weeks walking through this passage. because There's even so much more to add and what you're even just seeing here. Amazing chapter of the Bible. Such great truths. These are life-shaping things that change how we experience all of reality. And so as you think through how God's speaking to you right now, I want to just create some space like we do often here in Elevation for you to reflect and to respond to who Jesus is. We're going to offer some opportunities for prayer. And there's prayer points to my left, your right, my left, your right over here. If you want to just come up and pray with somebody, maybe you don't have an identity in Jesus Christ. You've never placed your faith in Jesus. Let today be the day that you receive a new identity in him. Maybe you're struggling with your identity. I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm just sitting in guilt. Today's the day just to pray with someone and be freed up in that way. We're also going to have the opportunity to take communion at the stations. We do this often, almost every week, but I just want to make sure that as we take it, that we don't do so just out of practice or habit. If you're going to take communion today, there's a couple things you need to understand. Is one, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ. The scriptures are clear that the communion table is only for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. You can do that even today, but make sure as you approach the table that you know Jesus Christ. And as you take the elements, the bread and the juice, these represent symbolically what Jesus has done for you to free you up from guilt, sin, and shame. There is no longer any condemnation for those in Christ. And so today, as you take the elements, I would even just encourage you, maybe prayerfully, maybe just whisper it, but say, there, therefore is now no condemnation in Jesus. And then participate in the communion elements from there. 
And then also there's a place to give at the stations. This is spirit-led. This is you and God. As the Spirit leads you to give, He's giving you an offering of His life. So now we respond with an offering of our finances. So let's pray, and then I'm going to let you respond. Father, thank you for Romans 8. Thank you for how it just gives us life as we're set free from guilt and shame. We understand that we have your spirit to live this Christian life. We belong to you. You're our Abba, our Father, our Daddy. Thank you, God, that you set us free to have hope and an inheritance to come and that we even get to experience now through the Spirit. And so, God, in this sacred moment, will you shape us? Will you prepare us? Not only for this time, but to be sent out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.